everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Fearcast. This is the podcast dedicated to OCD, anxiety, anxiety spectrum disorders, um, treatment of those things, and getting your life back. I am your host, Kevin Foss. I'm a licensed clinician, and I specialize in the treatment of OCD and anxiety. To no surprise, right? Well, thank you all for joining me for this episode. This is a um, uh, this was a fun one. Uh, so actually, for those of you uh, who are new to the show, this is typically a question and answer based podcast where you, the listener, get to email me over at fearcastpodcast.com. Email me there uh, with your questions, your queries, your quandaries about OCD and anxiety, and I will answer them on an episode. So um, this episode is going to be slightly different. I I was uh, I was joined on this episode by uh, John Hirschfield. I'll tell you a little about him in a moment. Um, but uh, he was uh, kind enough to, uh, to join me for this episode. But um, Again, I, I also, before I jump into that, I just want to thank everybody who has already filled out the survey about the podcast. Again, this for, for if you've not heard about this before, um, I am I would like to make this podcast better. I would like to improve it in any way that I can. So if you are kind enough to go over to fearcastpodcast.com backslash survey and take a few moments just to fill out uh, a brief survey about um, your experience with the podcast, what you think about it, what's working for you what's not working for you, what you'd like to see better or different, or just not there at all. I, I want to know about it again. How we can make this podcast better is my goal. Um, all right. So uh, if you like the podcast, uh, also, um, uh, uh, you can write a review about it somewhere. You can uh, like it, subscribe. Um, again, I think the best thing that you can do is just to tell someone about it, tell someone uh, that, that you think would benefit from the information in it. Uh, let them know. And that helps to spread the word. All right, so John Hirschfield is the director of the Center for OCD and Anxiety, which is Shepard Pratt's Outpatient Treatment Center for Obsessive Compulsive and Anxiety Disorders. He's a licensed marriage and family therapist in Maryland, Virginia, and California. Prior to founding the OCD and Anxiety Center of Greater Baltimore, John served as the associate director of the UCLA Pediatric OCD Intensive Outpatient Treatment Program at the Resnick Neuropsychiatric Hospital and was a psychotherapist at the OCD Center of Los Angeles where I was. Um, as if his clinical practice and his speaking engagements weren't enough, John is the author of The Mindfulness Workbook for OCD, When a Family Member Has OCD, and Overcoming Harm OCD, just to name a few. Uh, John was kind enough to meet with me. Um, it was super early for me, but again, he is on the uh, East Coast, and uh, so uh, he uh, his schedule is just slammed with, uh, with just things in his day. So um, I got up at... I, I got up at for the first time with an alarm in many, many months, um, uh, dragged myself out of bed, got to the office, tried to funnel as much coffee into my body as I possibly could. Um, I don't think it effectively woke me up. But John met with me at that early hour to talk about confidence and certainty. Uh, oftentimes, we are striving for certainty in our life. But ultimately, as you know, certainty is something that is just going to get us wrapped up into knots. So he talks more about confidence and how we can use the idea of confidence for our betterment and for uh, uh, for our own individual progress. So without further ado, here's my interview with John Hirschfield. All right, John, welcome to uh, the FearCast. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. Uh, hopefully, the connection stays well. Hopefully, it stays connected, and we will be able to go on without a hitch. So, thank you for joining the podcast. So, Thank you for having me. Yes. So we're going to so we're, we're going to talk a little bit today about the difference between certainty and confidence. This is something that um, a, a, a lot of folks have some trouble with. They have questions about in relation to OCD as a topic, but also just anxiety. The, the spectrum of anxiety uh, is just fraught with this effort to get certainty. It's kind of a it's a human thing. We all want to get certainty in everything that we do we make our careers so that we you know are are certain that we can pay our bills and that we can do the things that we want to do we have a house so we make sure that we're not going to get eaten by wolves or whatever it is that that, that may happen to us but um, unfortunately in the world of OCD and anxiety treatment what are we talking about the most of is it's accepting uncertainty so uh, you you've written a little bit about uh, uh, 
the difference between certainty and confidence. And I think that it, it, some folks might hear that as a splitting hairs situation or might think about it as those are the same words sometimes. But uh, could you uh, just expand a little bit on the, what, how do you view the difference between certainty and confidence? Sure. Well, let me try to define the terms. Sure. Uh, and actually, it's there's probably three terms we should be working with, certainty, confidence, and self-confidence, which is a slightly, mm-hmm. if we're going to split hairs, we might as, might as well split them as thin as we can. Let's do it. Um, you know, in the example you just gave, of, you know, we get a job, so I have certainty that I can support my family. Well, that's not true, right? It doesn't actually give you certainty of that. Right. Uh, we have a house, we have certainty that we won't be attacked by wolves. Well, that's a little bit closer to the truth, but I've seen enough movies to know that sometimes people turn into wolves. So, you know, you don't get perfect certainty, right? I have a question so about that later, but we'll get there. <laughs> certainty is perfect knowledge of the outcome or consequence of an experience, right? It's perfect knowledge of how things are going to go, right? I'm, I'm certain that I'm looking at my coffee cup right now. If I reach for my coffee cup, that my hand will reach it. Right. I can say that I have perfect knowledge of that. And, you know, one could argue that that's a debate over whether or not, you know, the 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 foot and a half from the coffee cup that I am is really the same length as my arm or whatever. It'd be a waste of time. And I could say I'm certain that I will reach the coffee cup if I reach for it. So it's perfect knowledge of what's going to happen. Confidence um, means really just means trust. It's trust that things will go my way or things will go how I've predicted them to go. Uh, Self-confidence, which is actually more important, is trust that whether or not things go my way, I'll be able to cope with it so that I can approach my experience uh, in the present moment, uh, honestly, truthfully. And if it doesn't go my way, I'll be able to adjust. I'll be able to pivot. I can be flexible. I hope it goes my way, but if it doesn't, I can handle it. Right, right. Yeah, I think that that is a that that's a fantastic splitting hairs in that in in terms of there's there is this idea. I think that we're we're talking about this a lot, especially with the uh, inhibitory learning process now. Uh, in in this idea that if things don't go my way, I can deal with it. I can handle it. That I'm I'm strong enough that whatever comes my way, if it doesn't go my way, is likely to be something that's not going to completely destroy or kill me, but that I can I can build this understanding that I can have the tools and the skills and the understanding and the and, and, and all the things to be able to to ride out that situation until something starts working out my way. Absolutely. And and I, and I love this idea and there's there's some good research behind it that occasionally reinforcing bad outcomes actually improves the larger outcome. So if I do an exposure to something a thousand times and, uh, you know, it doesn't get me sick, then I haven't really learned anything other than, well, uh, maybe I'm not going to get sick, but maybe next time I will. And I don't know if I can handle that. If I do an exposure to something a thousand times and one or two of those times I get a cold, but I'm able to like work through it Uh and I don't lose my job and my marriage doesn't fall apart, et cetera, et cetera. Um, well, then I've learned two things. One, it almost never happens. And two, uh, when it does, it is something I can cope with. And where people get tripped up is, well, what if the outcome is something that you're not going to know about immediately, like going to hell or having some sort of disease that actually kind of manifests much, much later or something like that. Right. Uh, but the real time thing you learn still is this... Uh, this issue of your ability to cope with uncertainty. Many people will tell us, uh, many of our clients tell us, I cannot resist this ritual because I need to know. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing you want to challenge, right? Is, well, maybe you don't need to know. What would it be like to not know and to sit with that not knowing? You're saying there's no way you could cope with it. Let's find out. Let's find out if you can cope with not knowing. Can you cope with not knowing for a minute, for an hour, for a day, for a week? Mm-hmm. And let's see what the outcomes of those experiments are. It's you're not going to learn necessarily that you're not going to go to hell or you're not going to get cancer, but you might learn that you're capable of dealing with the uncertainty. You might develop that self-confidence that whether or not it goes your way, you're willing to deal with it. And in that space, what are other things you could be doing with your attention? Mm-hmm. Right? What are other things you could be doing with your life besides perseverating on this one issue? 
Right. Yeah. And I think, and I, I think to a certain degree, some of that is a shift between what, what the, what the target what the target is and or what i what i call it kind of what the what the enemy is within the whole uh, uh therapy process sometimes a, a lot of folks will think it's the subject it's the it's the content of the fear that is the problem that we need to squash it's my, i need to understand my sexuality I need to know that i'm safe or I'm, that i'm not dangerous i need to know that i'm not gonna run somebody over or you know not, not go to hell or find out that um you know free will has been a lie the whole time um but that it's it, it's not any of that. It's the time between right now, this very moment, and the time and space when I finally discover that that thing will or will not happen. It's can I deal with the space in between that? Because when that thing actually does or doesn't happen, well, we'll deal with it when we get there, but we're not there. It's the, in a sense, it's a we'll cross the bridge when we get there scenario. Right. And certainty is uh, I won't have to deal with it which you don't get. Right. Confidence is I'll be able to deal with it, which you can fake and it might not be true. Uh-huh. And self-confidence is I believe I can deal with it. And if my belief is uh, uh, turns out not to be accurate, then I believe I will deal with that. Right. So I'm, so I'm curious then about if, if we're, if we're talking about this, this shift in, well, w- Let's play devil's advocate. What is the problem with certainty? Why why not try to get certain about things? Well, it's the same problem with uh, with perfect. Right? What is the problem with with trying to be perfect? It's um, I guess it's two problems. One, it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of it's a setup from the beginning. Uh-huh. You're trying to do something. I always I always recommend to my clients not try to do things that are impossible. They should try to do things that are possible. It's much better outcomes. Um, uh, the other is, um, you know, perfection is really this terribly chaotic state where even just the slightest modification completely destroys it, mm-hmm. right? Things don't go from perfect to almost perfect. They go to perfect, from perfect to, to imperfect, right? Right to, to the opposite. Um, so, I'll, I'll take pretty, 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 pretty good over perfect any day <laughs> it's much safer space there's room for growth and also if things need to step back a little bit uh it doesn't completely uh, crash the whole house of cards right yeah that that uh that that's that's very very small that minute uh sliver if it exists of perfect is is such a harder target to hit than than the rest of it than than really really good um i've i've sometimes shared the example with uh, with clients that it, it, there was a time when the, the the only thing i really knew about was archery and it's kind of a weird example but um no one has ever no one has ever shot a perfect round of of archery no one has ever done it um at least with olympic recurve um but the uh, uh it, it they, they kind of say on, on the target i mean at at a you're essentially shooting at a football field and, uh, or a, a, the, the length of a football field in, in competition. The very, very center of the target, there's this little X that is inside a, a small ring, that is inside the 10 ring, that is inside the 9 ring, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They say, at a football field, don't try to hit... You're, you're not trying to aim for the yellow section, which is the 9 and 10. You're not trying to hit the 10 ring. You're not even trying to hit the X ring, which is that little thing in the middle, because at a football field, you can't see any of it. Instead, you hit mm. one of the legs on the X, they call the spider. You're aiming for one of the legs on it. You can't see that at that distance. But the idea of it is that we can, if we, if we have this idea of that, knowing that we're never going to hit it, but we're going to get closer than anything else if we closer if we then if we just say i'm just going to try to hit that big thing down there now some people right. hear some people hear that example and they say well i should strive for perfection now i think that the pitfall with that sometimes is well they're not saying i'm going to strive for perfection they're saying i expect perfection i expect to hit that spider whereas they're, they're well, go ahead yeah and I think if you go if you go long enough getting uh, something close to perfection, you do start to develop and you start to believe that you're not good enough and that's why you haven't gotten there as mm-hmm. opposed to there's no there there. Um, you develop some pretty distorted beliefs that can concretize and then you do start to feel entitled. I deserve perfection, right? I've worked hard for it, therefore I should have it. And so we definitely see this in OCD where it's yeah. like, yeah, but I deserve certainty. The amount of effort that I've put into this, this is why it's very difficult for people yeah. who have been uh, either poorly treated or untreated with their OCD for a long time to, to really come to terms with 
you know, it's time to stop ruminating. It's time to stop figuring it out. It's time to drop your compulsions. And it's very difficult for them to drop them all at once because it comes with a lot of shame because that often it involves admitting mm. that you invested so much in a project that was never going to work out and you're not going to get that time back. Right. So sometimes it's, it's important to kind of reduce your rituals slowly if you're not able to withstand the shame that comes with, with all of that loss that the OCD uh, was involved with. Yeah. And you're practicing. I mean, the way you're talking about there is practicing being imperfect. It's, it's, a, it's a weird way to say it, but we're practicing accepting that, that uncertainty and pulling back on those compulsions ever so slowly rather than just jumping in and, and, and feeling the full bluntness of its terror. Sometimes you're right. That is the best way to step into it. But to, I mean, to that well, point, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, sometimes people get stuck on this idea that the goal of OCD treatment is to, you know, eliminate the presence of all of your terrible thoughts, all of your unwanted thoughts. Right. And when people start to get better, particularly with the types of OCD that involve uh, taboo or, or, or other types of unwanted thoughts, mm-hmm. um, they, they start to notice them less. They start to notice them to being less burdensome. So there is this illusion of they're going away. They're not actually going away. They're just being attended to less mm-hmm. and therefore not being recorded in memory as significant. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people get caught up in this perfectionism of, I'm not better until I'm void of unwanted thoughts. Right. And someone actually asked me this the other day. They said, do you, if you could, well, they said, do you ever get unwanted thoughts? And I was like, yes. Yeah. And they were like, and if you could get rid of all of them, you know, if there was like a magic pill or something, you know, so you just didn't have them anymore. Mm-hmm. Would you, would you, right? Would you get rid of them? Mm-hmm. And and my answer to that was absolutely not. Mm. You know, the, the level of unwanted thoughts that I have now, I'm certainly willing to cope with. Sometimes it bubbles up above that level and it's like, okay, I need to, I need to address this because it's getting in my way. But most of the time it doesn't. And I wouldn't give them up for anything because some of these like awful, disgusting and horrifying thoughts are hilarious mm-hmm. and boost my creativity. But more importantly, they're part of who I am. And I don't want to give up who I am just to stick it to the OCD. I want to maintain who I am and know that the OCD is not keeping me from pursuing a life that I value. It's interesting to see, to have that mindset that some of your that 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 in in a way your intrusive thoughts are part of your humanity they're part of you're viewing them as who you are and in a sense almost a valued part of who you are yes yes and is that less than perfect maybe it's better than perfect i could ask you to expand on that but i think that would take us down a rabbit hole <laughs> so maybe, I, yes. so so i wonder that well what is the how can someone make that shift then from a search for certainty, this idea of, of getting certainty, maybe even perfection, to an idea or a stance of acceptance and of perhaps of confidence or self-confidence even? Yeah, I think you alluded to it before. It's practice, right? So you practice doing things that you're afraid of, things where you don't have uh, as much confidence as you'd like, things where... Uh, the uncertainty seems harder to tolerate than in other areas of your life where you tolerate uncertainty really easily. Mm-hmm. Um, and you run these experiments over and over and over again until the brain is forced to recalculate its position on the tolerability of it. I, I often talk to my clients about you know trying to see things from the brain's perspective. You know, the brain has no idea that you have a mental health condition that makes it difficult for you to uh, you know, ignore some of your unwanted thoughts and sensations and feelings. And uh, it, it just, it doesn't know you have OCD. It assumes everything you're doing is totally rational. So if you avoid something, your brain's like, yep, yeah, that was dangerous. Good idea. Right. It doesn't matter what it was, mm-hmm. you know? And if you spend a lot of time ruminating over something, trying to figure it out, your brain's like, yeah, there's, there's a missing element here. We're going to crack this case. Let's keep going. Right. It's never going to say, Hey, uh, something's wrong with you because it just can't know that. Mm-hmm. So, when you do exposure and response prevention, meaning you put yourself in those situations where you really want certainty and then you resist the compulsions and rituals and safety behaviors that uh, kind of block you from that uncomfortable experience, Mm -hmm. uh, your brain eventually has to turn around and say, oh, 
oh, I guess there must have been a miscalculation. You know, we, we thought this was dangerous because you were avoiding it, but now you keep interacting with it. And it doesn't seem to care that you're anxious or that you're maybe having some scary thoughts about it. Mm-hmm. All it's noticing is that you're interacting with the scary thing and you wouldn't do that. You're not crazy, right? So it must be that the calculation was off. Maybe this thing isn't so scary. Or, and then back to inhibitory learning, this is my favorite part of it, maybe it is scary, but we're allowed to be scared. Yeah, that that permission, that fear, that feeling of fear, the experience of fear actually isn't that bad. Right, that's what's being inhibited, is that drive to escape the fear. Right. right? So when you watch a scary movie, Mm -hmm. you're not going into it saying, gee, I hope this is boring. Right. Right. You're going into it thinking, yeah, I hope this presses my buttons a little bit. You know, I mean, I'd like to sleep tonight, but still, (laughs) when, when the scary thing happens, your instinct, your body might tell you something is wrong, but your instinct is not to run out of the theater. Right. right, You're inhibited from doing that because some part of your brain has already calculated that this is an experience we're allowed to have. Right. It's, it's wanted. It's, it's, you, you, you paid money to feel terror. <laughs> Briefly and in a contained environment, yes. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, it's like, it, it's like roller coasters are, are something where you pay money so that you can feel like you're about to die. Yes, violently. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> and, and again, if you, if, if you, I guess I tell my clients this too, if you went on a roller coaster or saw a scary movie and you didn't feel terror, you'd say that was a lame ride or you said that was a bad movie. Right. Mm-hmm. We, we kind of, the, I, I kind of view it as the difference, the, the differences that the, the context, the context of the feeling that you have. When you go to that scary movie, you want to feel that. So therefore, if the feeling was bad, if the feeling was inherently bad, it would be bad in every context. But in this context, it's all of a sudden good. It points out the neutrality of that feeling itself, and therefore we, we don't need to run or fear that feeling. Something I've always found interesting, too, is that we, we think of OCD as being irrational. We say, I'm having an irrational thought or I have an irrational fear, and and. I don't actually agree with that assessment. There are irrational behaviors, meaning there are ways of responding to thoughts that don't line up with what would make sense in the in the real world that we live in, where we're trying to get things done, we're trying to get our needs met. So you could say that's a that's an irrational way to respond to that thought. But the thoughts themselves are sort of free agents. They just sort of are what they are. They're words scribbled on the on the walls of your mind. Uh, so and I think people underestimate how often we have these horrible thoughts. And if you were to sort of watch me throughout the day, you would probably see multiple times where I just kind of, uh, my shoulders go up and I make a weird face and I go, Ugh. and then I move on because it's not an obsession. It's just a terrible thought that I had, you know, what if this doesn't go my way? Ugh. Um, so people come into our office and they say, uh, oh, well, you know, I have this, uh, you know, this, this horrible thought about what if I get sick or uh, what if I, tomorrow I realized I'm a different sexual orientation or gender identity and, and I didn't know and it's really embarrassing. And there's nothing fundamentally irrational about having that thought or finding that thought disturbing. Those are disturbing thoughts by definition. If it You're were allowed to be disturbed by them. And, and and I suppose, to be fair, if if something like that did happen, that would have a tremendous impact on one's life. It, it it if it likely would so if that were to happen right. it could it could throw your life off nobody wants their life to be so, thrown off right and nobody wants exactly nobody wants we all believe that we're somehow in command of our narrative and we get very offended when it's brought to our attention that you know maybe we're not and maybe the narrative's going to go awry and totally <laughs> different from from our expectations mm-hmm. so so kind of tying this into what we were just discussing about you know being allowed to be afraid the thing is it's okay to think like, oh, that's awful, right? Mm-hmm. Now, where does irrationality come into it? It's, I'm going to ruminate over whether or not this is going to happen for the next 12 hours until I'm certain that it won't, and then I'll feel safe. Right. That's not a rational way to deal with a scary thought. A rational way to deal with a scary thought is the same as a rational way to deal with a scary scene in a movie. It's to go, ah, <laughs> and yeah. then move on to the next scene. Right, right. And I think that some folks will, will get... Uh, I think it's really important in the in the way that you're saying is that you're you are giving permission to have a a a, a shivery kind of response or kind of a a, a, a blech kind of response to some of these thoughts. I think there it's in other words it, it's okay to have to a certain degree some reaction to them. I think a lot of folks 
get into, or some folks will get into OCD and anxiety treatment and say, I need to be stoic with all of my fears. I need to, like, I, if I have a thought, I just need to kind of hold it out, control my feelings, not respond to it, and be able to just get on with, get on with my life without it having any impact in my life. But there are some of those thoughts that are just kind of uncomfortable. Well, and, and you could make the argument that we've been conditioned to find them uncomfortable, right? Sure. If you just saw them written down on a piece of paper, they might not be uncomfortable, but when they spontaneously pop into your head, they seem more uncomfortable because we've learned to some extent to be distressed by them, either for cultural reasons or other reasons. Sure. Uh, and that's fine. But, but again, making some space for the fact that, okay, that's just how you react to that. And then making a decision about, okay, what are we going to do next? What's what's the what's the what's the healthy behavior next? And so tying this into our discussion about certainty and perfectionism, I think sometimes people get stalled a little bit in their treatment. They don't realize how far they've come because they're setting the goalpost in this kind of like that archery metaphor you were saying. Yeah. They're, they're they're setting it at that perfect place where they're totally unaffected by anything. Mm -hmm. But you know that's just like. Uh, being a zombie right i mean that's not that's not a life right you need to be able to be affected and you need to be able to handle uh the fact that some things affect you more than others mm -hmm. and some things might even dysregulate you and so it might also be useful to have some some regulation skills on board if you're prone to being emotionally dysregulated none of that is incompatible mm -hmm. with overcoming ocd Right. It all it all fits in kind of having your your tool chest of skills that, you know, you can use just to just to get through. I think the you know, I, I, I rephrase the the at least to myself, um, that idea of emotional regulation to the idea of, of dealing with it. It's how do we how do we deal with it? What are the skills that we have to make to get us through? So, yeah, that you know, knowing that we are going to get thrown off dysregulated. And we can get ourselves back, get the get the ship back upright, is is really helpful to know. As opposed to saying if if my life is just going to crumble with any sort of thought, that's living a very brittle life, and we're gonna we're gonna face ad, ad, adversarial situations in life or adversarial thoughts in life. It's 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 part of it, and that's all part of developing confidence. You know, confidence in your competence, right? That yes. I I'm competent at uh, handling what comes my way. And when I'm not, when I lose that sense of it, I, I have some level of you know, belief that I can reach into my toolbox and grab another tool to help me with having lost my footing. Right. Uh, by the way, I think that should be a t-shirt the IOCDF should sell is confidence in my competence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's probably not going to be a good seller but it's, it's a little bit of a mouthful but yeah <laughs> yeah uh it'll be very in, in crowd sort of sort of stuff um so so to kind of shift a little bit to kind of take this idea to to perhaps a a or not perhaps to a very specific type or subtype of ocd is that i i, I kind of noticed that arguably uh folks with hocd seem to struggle a, a lot i I don't necessarily want to say the most with it because I, I don't necessarily like that hyperbole. But to say they they struggle a lot with this idea of certainty that they that they feel like their sexuality is a given and that it's something that they just ought to know. Um, kind of this assumption that everybody else just just knows their sexuality and they're perhaps entitled to this idea that that they that it should be um, a given. Um, how does someone with HOCD shift this shift their mindset from certainty to confidence or even self-confidence? You just know when you said that the people with sexual orientation OCD suffer the most, somebody with POCD completely oh. hung up in this podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Screw that guy. Pro and you know what? Um, That's fine. <laughs> They're going to hate me. That's fine. It's, but I, I agree with you that it's a, it's, it's, it's a nuanced difference. I mean, there is something interesting about the kind of suffering that at least I've seen in clinical practice that goes with sexual orientation obsessions and, and relationship obsessions, I think, are very similar in that regard. This sense that, yeah, 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 but you would know, right? right. You know, it's like you can have uncertainty as to whether or not there's a, a germ on the doorknob, but you really shouldn't have uncertainty about, you know, who you're attracted to or who you belong with or mm -hmm. stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um and I, I, I suspect that just comes from all those uh, 
you may or may not want to edit this out, but terrible articles published in Psychology Today. You know, five five ways to know. You know, he's the one. Or hey, I have some of those articles in Psychology Today. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's usually not the blogs written by the OCD experts, but but you know what I mean. It's this kind of pop the culture sort of like here's an easy way to make sense of something that actually doesn't help make sense of it at all um so i think part of the challenge with sexual orientation obsessions and relationship obsessions is that there's a higher uh degree of subjectivity meaning the 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 determination is not necessarily based on the behavior if i kill someone you could say i'm a murderer but if I have a gay sexual experience, that doesn't automatically define my sexual orientation as a gay man. There's, there's, there's a lot of room for interpretation and, and fluidity and subjectivity about how I identify. Um, there are great relationships out there with people who fight a lot, right? And then there are terrible relationships with people who, you know, are... You know, oh, right? Yeah. Um, and so, again, it's the subjective sense of the health of a relationship. It's not necessarily defined by the individual activities that happen in the relationship. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why it makes it a little bit more difficult for people to grapple with that uncertainty because, again, they feel entitled to it because maybe they've been told they should know. And it's a little more slippery than some other things that are sort of slightly more obvious to tell like did this or did this not occur mm-hmm. in your life right right it's not necessarily yet yeah, the, the 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 presence of of a thought the presence of an urge or the presence of an awareness but it's a is a constellation of a lot of things where somebody rounds up in a sense to to who they are what they are and, and how they identify but um but it seems like a it seems like an especial or especially a, a struggle then in kind of pulling someone out of this very popular mindset that that you are either one thing or another. I, I always refer to the Kinsey scale in that is that the majority of people aren't ones or sevens. I mean, the, the opposite ends of it is they're us, they're usually twos and sixes. We're just kind of in, inside of that, and it's furthermore, it's that little spectrum where it's it, it's it's not something that is firmly on on the far ends of it that we're, we're going to kind of just be inside of that and that is where the majority of people live and that's an okay and that's a reasonable place to be but I, but i would add too i mean the kinsey scale is not scientific gospel either i mean it's, sure. it's not 100 percent clear that that's the truth about sexual orientation that's a that's a model of sexual orientation that makes some amount of sense sure. and i think is useful for discussing the importance of being flexible, um, psychologically flexible. Yeah. Uh, but I, but I think a lot of people are out there feeling a hundred percent confident in in their sexual orientation, and they're not thinking of themselves as you know uh, a little bit gay or a little bit straight. Mm-hmm. They're they're really feeling fully confident in their identity. They may be feeling totally uncertain and unhinged over some other aspect of their identity, but not that, Mm -hmm. right? It's sort of an obsession is that which you are not willing to accept uncertainty about. It's Mm -hmm. really all it is that makes an obsession, Mm. right? We have to accept uncertainty about all things all the time. Right. Even in, in, in the middle of this discussion, I'm, I'm, I'm fond of telling people the ceiling could fall on my head. And the only reason that's not an obsession is that I'm still in this room. And if I said, hey, I got to get out of this room and call the architect and make sure the ceiling is, uh, you know, the way it's supposed to be so it doesn't fall on my head, you would say, well, John has an obsession with ceilings falling on his head. Right. That's an uncertainty he's not willing to tolerate. Mm. If I'm wrong, I'll die. It's not like some small no consequence of the ceiling falling on my head. I'm just not that interested in getting to the bottom of that project right now. But I could be, and you would call it an obsession. Right. You know, as I'm, as I'm sitting here kind of thinking about that, that, uh, that Kinsey analogy, and, and you're right, it does, it, it, it does have its shortcoming in the sense that it, is, it isn't necessarily dealing with directly, or directly dealing with the, the uncertainty element of it. It's, it's saying, I, I don't know where I am on that. 
and it ultimately doesn't really matter that much. Or that the the feeling of uncertainty, again, that's that needs to be my target, not whether or not I'm a two or a three or a one or a seven, right. six. Right. I was or, I was not put on this earth to determine my number on the Kinsey scale. It's kind of a good way to look at it. Right, yeah. right, right. Um, well, I think this conversation might just change some of my practice. So thank you very much for that. This element of this sure element thing. of clinical yeah. supervision. Thank you so much. Um, but um, so so some of that uh, you, you you were kind of talking about the 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 pop psychology elements of it. And um, oh man, this is a whole separate side note. The you were talking about relationships. The 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 age old question that everybody asks in junior high: How do you know you're in love? What do people say? You know when you know. Yeah, I, I, I've I've always hated that. It's yeah. How 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 the hell do you know? We don't have like a button that pops out on us that says like, oh, now now you're in love. It's it's ambiguous. There's something, and I think we're in a an interesting phase of history where we're starting to open up to this idea of what it is to be neurotypical or neurodivergent, and opening up to this idea that you know there might be people out there who don't have the same experience that you have. So you meet your partner and you have this great relationship and you know you're in love because every time you look at her, your heart bursts into flames mm -hmm. and that's how you know. But you don't have to tell me that that's how I would know because it's entirely possible that the way my brain works is I don't get to know those things. I'm navigating this world where I picked a, per a partner who doesn't abuse me, who, who seems to more or less like what I'm putting down, and uh, I have other things that I think are really important to know that go beyond that specific thing. This is good. For me, my brain says good enough. This other thing about whether or not there's a, the, these forks are clean or something like that, that's where my focus is. And it might just be that you know, the way that this brain works is it doesn't have that mechanism. And the beauty of it is it doesn't need that mechanism. I don't have to know in order to be happy and live as if I'm in love and to define being in love as something that I can't define. I don't have to have a heart on fire. Right. And the and that I, I don't I don't have to. And I, I'm free to have a relationship. I'm free to have a relationship that doesn't have that. And that relationship can still be really, really good. There is and passionate and full of intense yeah. love. It's not like I'm describing some sort of boring relationship. It's more of that and this also applies to sexual orientation stuff sure. like um, I don't have to lock down what it means or where I am on the Kinsey scale. I don't have to lock it down mm -hmm. either because the way my brain works, I don't have that feeling that you have where it's mm -hmm. totally locked down or maybe I could get it, but it's just not what I want to devote the rest of my life to trying to get the mechanism in my brain mm -hmm. to make that shift it, the effort that it would take to get there it will interfere in the energy that I need for these other efforts in my life that make my life worth living. Right. Right. And again, back, back to the, the idea of perfection. If it, the, the effort it would take to try to get to that place, a place that may never exist, a place of perfection of full understanding might not ever exist. So we might have to, again, sit with the idea of a failure that we're not going to get that answer, but that's okay. Right. Well, and, and if it's okay, then by definition, it's also not a failure. It's just an right. absence. Right? right. You know, it's just something that isn't there that doesn't need to be there. Um, and you see this too in, in moral scrupulosity, you know, right. this sort of, this drive, this like need to know that you're a good enough person and, and this belief that there's a way to get there. And both <laughs> there's not necessarily a way to get there. And also, you might not be a person who feels that way about these things. And that can also be okay. Mm -hmm. you, just because there's some other guy out there, you know, on stage giving some sort of motivational uh, talk, you know, charging uh, you know, $500 at the door saying, you know, here's how you, you know, you're a good person. Cause I know I'm a good person that, okay, good for that guy that he, that he has that experience. That's how his brain works, but maybe that's not how your brain works. Does that have to be, a deal breaker for you to live an otherwise thriving and happy and joyful life. I don't think so. And, and, and they would argue, well, well, yes, I do. 
or at the very least, I, I I would like to have that mindset. I would like to. I mean, I think about my my religious group clients. I want to know that I'm safe or saved. Excuse me. Like I, I want to have security in the knowledge that I you know I, I am doing my faith correctly, and I'm going to go to whatever version of positive afterlife they're they're they are pursuing. Well, at the risk of dipping my toe in the you know theological waters, I mean, <laughs> what about that is faithful? That just mm-hmm. sounds like a business transaction between you and your God, where right. you you know invest a certain amount of effort, and He pays you back with some ticket to some place in the afterlife. Right. There's nothing. There's no faith involved in that discussion. Right. Faith yeah. is, by definition, uh, the the willingness to continue to believe something without without the mountain of evidence. Mm-hmm. You know. Right. Um, uh, and, you know, I've, I've said before that this is OCD. We, we know it has something to do with the good enough mechanism in the brain not clicking as efficiently as it, as it could. Right. So, so for you know, most people, they lock a door, they walk away, and there's some internalized sense that a, that a task has been completed. Mm-hmm. The brain is saying, good enough, we can move on. Mm-hmm. That's not certainty that the door's been locked. That's definitely confidence, but it's at confidence at a neurological level. So imagine, you know, you're locking the door and you walk away, but it doesn't feel like you did anything. Mm-hmm. And then you have the thought, well, maybe I didn't lock the door. Maybe that was just a memory of me locking some other door at some other time. So right. that urge to go back and make sure it's locked is going to be stronger. Mm-hmm. But of course, the more you compulsively go back and check, the more you're sending the signal to the brain that you don't know when a door is locked or not. Mm-hmm. Right Back to our previous discussion about looking at it from the brain's perspective. Right. So it creates the very environment you're trying to get away from. So imagine, you know, in moral scrupulosity, it's just, I'm not a good enough person. And now you're doing all these, you know, mental gymnastics to try to prove that you are a good person, which is sending the signal to the brain that you have no idea if you're a good person or not. And you're not getting any help from the good enough mechanism that says, we're good, move on. Right. Right. You're trying to force it. And, um, you know, that doesn't work. Right. So ultimately, we need to reinforce this idea that that we either don't need to know what that answer is or that we can sit within that. We can sit in that good enough place. For an extended period of time. Absolutely. And that's what really becomes tragic for a lot of people with sexual orientation obsessions, is Mm -hmm. they spend so much time trying to reassure themselves that they are their preferred identity, that they, they kind of overload the brain with the signal that they have no idea, right? They started off having an idea. Then they saw something that triggered them, and they go, "Oh, well, maybe I'm maybe I'm not straight, or maybe I'm not gay." And then they started investigating. And the longer they investigate, the mm-hmm. more they're sending that signal to the brain that they lack confidence. And that's really the issue, right? Right. And I, I worry that someone who's who's listening to this might also then hear, "Well, then, John, here's what I ought to do. If I'm sending my, the message to my brain that I that I I do doubt my my sexual orientation or doubt who I am, well, then I should be reinforcing this idea of who I am and be marinating my brain in this idea that I am this person or I am this orientation." No, because only an only a person lacking confidence needs to have that reinforced. Mm. So, by definition, if you want to rebuild that confidence, you need to do what a person does who is confident. Confident people don't reassure themselves. They just get stuff done. Is, <laughs> this, just, a, is, is this a fake it till you make it scenario? I think it might feel that way for a lot of people. Um, but I don't think it's faking. I, I, I mean, I think just sort of like doing something that's in line with your values while feeling like you have no idea if it's the right thing to do isn't yeah. exactly the same thing as faking, but it certainly might feel that way for a while. Right. I think that, that, that feeling is the, uh, uh, in, in, in part is the key point to it. It's the, it, it feels this way, but that's, that's your anxiety talking, or that is that, that feared part of your brain talking. It's that just because it feels fake doesn't mean that it is fake, but that we can have that feeling and that's that, that doubt but that that place is again okay, and sometimes we feel that feeling, and we're we're going to be okay as we continue on doing our life. Yeah, to whatever degree that looks like. So, I mean, um, we we could I, I could beat that dead horse, or we could beat that dead horse even further. Um, 
so I wonder how does this? I mean, we've we've talked a lot about OCD. How does this expand out to perhaps other elements of of just the anxiety spectrum? So generalized anxiety, hypochondria. In in what way can we see uh, certainty versus confidence versus self confidence in generalized anxiety or in um, hypochondria or other elements? So you know, my opinion on this might not be shared by every clinician listening to the podcast, mm-hmm. but I. I have a lot of difficulty seeing these as as fundamentally different disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're they're different names for different aspects of the same problem, which is this sort of combination of uncertainty, intolerance, and uh, and, and and mistaken belief that you should be able to get certainty. Mm-hmm. So, in what would probably be best identified as you know generalized anxiety, you have these unwanted intrusive thoughts about things not going your way that are very down to earth, the things that we normally worry about finances mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that, you know, our jobs. Uh, and, and the primary compulsions, the ways in which we try to convince ourselves that things will go our way uh, are going to be rumination or worry, maybe some avoidance, reassurance seeking. I mean, it still really just sounds like OCD to me. I've heard other people refer to GAD as OCD light mm-hmm. and, and I, you know, again, I don't know if there's any 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 science behind that, but I've certainly seen people with generalized anxiety disorder put under stress, and their symptoms go up, and then they develop what would easily be identified as OCD. Mm-hmm. You know, after that, and so maybe it is just an extension of the same thing. Um, but I, again, I think it still comes down to the to the core concepts we've been discussing this whole podcast that uh, life necessarily and it, and I would say it's part of the beauty of life involves grappling with uncertainty and willingness to be in the presence of uncertainty mm-hmm. and in terms of generalized anxiety if your primary compulsion is worrying right what is the signal that your brain is getting from that worry that there's an unfinished project and you're going to finish it if only you would try harder Right. If, mm-hmm. if there was no disorder involved, the only rational explanation is that there's something missing. Mm-hmm. This is not a cold case. This is a case you're going to solve. And if you want to turn that around, yeah, it literally means not worrying. And, and again, people say like, oh, but you have to be prepared for things. You, know, you have to worry about your children. You have to worry about this and that. And I, I don't agree with that. I mean, I agree that you need to take some steps to prepare, but that has to do more with stay with being in the moment right mm-hmm. preparation is actually a present moment activity right okay. so like before this podcast you and i had some emails and in our individual present moments we said you know now's a good time for me to put some attention on this thing i'm going to do tomorrow what are some things that we could discuss and you and i had a little back and mm-hmm. forth but we really weren't focused on today we were focused on that moment mm-hmm. of of getting to know each other and and talking about hey what would make it for a good podcast right Right. Whereas worrying could have started, you know, months ago. Oh, what if I'm on a podcast? And I don't know what to say, and he doesn't ask you the right questions, and all this stuff. <laughs> what is that yeah. going to accomplish besides psyching me out? Right, right. Because then it's there's also nothing that I can do about that. There's no action that I can take. Um, I can't influence f- five minutes from now, but I can, or I can't control five minutes from now. I can control, I, I put that in quotes, I, there are a lot of things that are, there are certainly a lot of things out of my control, but the only moment that I can actually influence or do really anything about is this one right now. So uh, perhaps in, in that, in those emails, we were trying to, we were trying to set ourselves up for the best possible podcast by doing something right now that we could, that we could influence that, not knowing though, that it, whether or not that email was going to create the best possible episode on earth, or if it was just right. going to be, you know, a, a flaming garbage heap. Yeah. See, they would never put me in charge of, you know, making motivational posters because I would have like, a picture <laughs> of a cat. And then under that would be the words, it might not work out. Right. (laughs) Right. But that's not, I don't view that as negative (laughs) or pessimistic. I view that as just being open to what comes next. So it's, so it's, you, you, so in the cat hanging, is it, you, is it, you never know if you're going to fall or is it, or is the pessimistic view, you're still going to die eventually? Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. It could it could go either way. I mean, I don't know. Maybe there's like a trampoline under the cat, and, and I just can't see it because it's out of frame. Very very possible. Again, I think these are some things that um, I mean. That's this is a this is a more whimsical version of Schrodinger's cat. I kind of like this version. Um, and, That's right. And maybe it's, you That's know, right. maybe it's he's above a, a, a pit full of spikes. I don't know. But again, Could be. he's either doomed or not doomed, or maybe he's somehow both at the same time. We have to observe him. Again, IOCDF needs to make some posters. I don't know why they're not listening to us on this. So I think you're in a better <laughs> position than I am. Um, so, all right. So I, so I wonder then... Um, so I wonder how how do we how do we apply this in the in the world of COVID that we're in? We're in. I mean, we're we're currently in the middle of a plague. So you know, I don't know if people are listening to this in the future when we've solved it. Um, but how, what? Nobody wants to get sick. Nobody. Every, Kevin, Kevin, people might be listening to this in the future when we haven't solved it. That's that's. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And they're going. They still didn't know what to do. Nobody knows what to do. We're doomed. They could be thinking that. But they're like they're like in some sort of biodome on Mars, and someone's like, "Hey, I just found this like old timey thing called a podcast, and it's just <laughs> these two guys talking about uncertainty." Yeah, they, yeah, they were so optimistic. They're humans from Earth. <laughs> yeah, crazy. Uh, <laughs> it's just, this will be well. Hi to the future, then. Sup? Yes. All right. So good um, day. Good day. All right. Well, then, what do we? How how can we apply this idea of of uncertainty with something that is a a very present fear? I mean, I I, I tell everyone, you know, a, a year ago, our conversation with contamination exposures was very very different. Um, a year ago, I'd been licking my shoe at least once a week for exposure purposes, um, but. I'm not doing that now. I'm one of the lucky ones that has a lung disorder, so I'm not really going anywhere. But um, I guess how how can someone best apply this idea of certainty versus confidence and find a way to continue living a, a reasonable life in the land of COVID? Well, first of all, COVID hasn't redefined OCD as much as I think we have come to talk about it as having redefined OCD. I mean, OCD has to do with what we were talking about earlier in the podcast, this uh, difficulty choosing rational behavioral responses to mm -hmm. unwanted thoughts, feelings, and, and sensations. Mm -hmm. So, it, it, it often changes. You know, what becomes a rational response in one context might change in another, right? Mm -hmm. So, it's rational to uh, go outside on a nice sunny day. But if we're, you know, in some sort of uh, war and our village is occupied by the enemy, uh, it might not be rational to go outside on a nice sunny day. Mm -hmm. right? Maybe stay inside, right? So, circumstances can change. So, what, what really, you know, so OCD is still OCD. It has to do with the excessive or irrational behavioral responses to the circumstances that you're in. And we still see it even with COVID. So, Yes, uh, you know, pre-COVID, I would say, you know, in in our cultural context, you know, wearing a mask to go to the grocery store would probably be considered a compulsion, a safety behavior, uh, an excessive ritualistic behavior. Mm -hmm. And now it's considered uh, your civic duty and basic common sense and decency and and good for your health, right? And I'm sure you've encountered this with some of your clients. But how do I know for certain that when I took my mask off and I, you know, put it in the passenger seat of my car that I didn't contaminate my whole car with COVID and now I need to amputate my arm because I touched the outside of my mask and, right? It's like all the same problems are there. They've just shifted a little bit in, in this direction. Mm -hmm. You know, the OCD is still the OCD, even though you're doing more washing and avoiding than mm -hmm. you might have done previously. Um, you know, COVID has made, in a sense, it's made it easier and harder at the same time to deal with uncertainty easier in the sense that it's it's really limited the amount of choice people think they have mm -hmm. right the the problems i anticipated having this year are so different from the problems i have this year right that i just have to laugh at how worried i was you know back in january about you know whatever my career or or some other aspect of my experience mm -hmm. it's a no no sense of like 
how we were going to deal with things like the economy and school and things like that. Right? right. So it's a good lesson in the futility of catastrophizing because you're probably wrong about what you're catastrophizing about. The universe will tell you at some point. Yes. It's not this or that. It's some third thing you couldn't possibly have conceived of. Um, but of course, it's also made it harder because we're flooded with bad information from every possible angle. People don't are not confident into what to do. How do I stay safe? Um, people are still engaging in some excessive behaviors, and then people are still engaging in some unsafe behaviors because they don't really understand or want to believe what's really going on out there. So, uh, you know, my, my strong recommendation kind of remains the same as it, as it has since this thing really landed in March, which is look to what's good now mm-hmm. because your worrying is not going to make the, uh, the pandemic leave any sooner. Mm-hmm. The the music that you like, the movies that you like, the people that you love, uh, they are the same as they were before, and 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 you don't, you're not required to take your attention off of that and put it on. Well, what's the world going to look like in you know November when flu season comes around? You could acknowledge that that's a scary thought, but mm-hmm. you don't have to focus your every waking moment to thinking about it. Living your life, yeah. Living your life, and with the with the subtle shifts that all of society, for the most part, is is doing. Wearing masks, we are washing our hands a little bit more, but it's it's also that is not the lifestyle that we all need to take on. It is we do those things and we live our life. Try to have fun. Yeah. Try to enjoy. Build relationships. Do our job as best we possibly can. And shifting our attention into those things. Yeah. And, and, you know, we try to stay open to new information. So, um, you know, I'm washing my hands more than I was before, but not as much as I was in March. You know, when, when I thought there was COVID on everything and, and I monster. didn't understand anything about the science of fomites and stuff like that. I mean, <laughs> you were talking about like, like licking your shoe. I mean, you, I mean... I think it's a reasonable choice to stop doing that for a number of reasons, and COVID could be one of them. But uh, but you're also, you know, very unlikely to get COVID that way, based on what we understand now. Of right. course, what we understand now might change again, right? Well, the, I mean, the the, the Mars the, the Mars people now know that um, you know what we should and shouldn't have done. But right. So if they have the technology, they could send us some kind of care package with some useful information, you know, back in time. Yeah. And to you Mars people who are listening, shoot that back to January, February. Don't send it to September. Just <laughs> just, just, cut this off at the pass. So <laughs> You know what? Just, just to be safe, shoot it back to... I don't know, 2015. <laughs> <laughs> just for funsies. Um, yeah. Well, we've got other calamities. Well, or they just thought this was uh, this is a fun thing that we need to figure out. Um, this is just delightful to look at. So, um, I, I know we've we've been talking a lot, and I want to release you back to the wild here. But, but before we sign off, it's my it's my understanding that you are a a horror movie buff. Am I am I wrong yes. in that? Yes, it, and 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 again, we were just talking about you know look to what's good now. Yeah, I continue to derive a lot of a lot of joy and comfort and childlike awe from you know these little nerd experiences that I'm able to continue having from home by you know, watching my favorite movies or um, I got my uh, Fangoria magazine came in the mail you know a few weeks ago and kind of like just thumbing through it and just you know, reading about how they do the special effects and stuff like that. And it's just taken me to a place that isn't terrified in that moment of what world my kids are going to grow up in or what their education is going to look like or whether or not people I love are going to get sick and die prematurely. Mm-hmm. It's something that you enjoy, and it's a, a, a frivolous thing. It doesn't. It ultimately doesn't matter. But I'm not. I'm not disparaging your hobby because um, I. Fr- I have one more question about it too. It's that you, you enjoy it, so do it, and redirect your attention, despite the anxiety of whatever, into that thing that you actually enjoy. Again, whatever it is. What What are your What are your for the for the listeners out there? What are your top three horror movies? I recently just watched Hereditary. If you've seen that one. <laughs> Um, I have seen Hereditary. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I, you know, I, I grew up in a, in, at a time 
where I think horror was going through uh, a kind of enlightenment and there was a lot of what they might call now body horror. So that's always been something that's interested me. And I think it has something to do with OCD in the sense of I would see these things and go like, oh, I've seen that before. Like that seems familiar. You know, I've seen it in my head and, and there's something sort of comforting about it. Um, and uh, so I've always, uh, so when I think about movies, about people's bodies changing and things I grew up with, I, I think of um, uh, The Fly mm-hmm. of David Cronenberg. Uh, I think of An American Werewolf in London, which I think is, an, is one of those movies, kind of like, you know, like Back to the Future is a good example if you're flipping through the channels and you just happen to land on Back to the Future. Wherever you are in that movie is worth watching because yeah. it's that well-constructed. That's kind of how I feel about An American Werewolf in London. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, and and the first two Hellraiser movies, uh, just the the style and the imagery and the um, it's a it's a whole the, world, and and the willingness to take itself seriously while at the same time being totally over the top. There's just some beauty in that for me, anyway. <laughs> well, I, I will now. I, now I have four movies I need to put on my schedule that. Um, I can only watch after my wife goes to sleep. She's like, why do you watch those things? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've either just made or ruined your weekend. <laughs> no one knows. No, and we'll, we'll, I'll have to, we'll, I'll have to let you know, but we, we can never be certain about that. Anyways. So John, I'll, I'll release you back to the wild and you've got things to do. And I appreciate you spending the amount of time that you have with, uh, with the listeners. So uh, it, 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 it means a lot. And uh, if we have uh, follow up questions by listeners, I'll be sure to uh, forward those to you and bo- bother you those. And you can promptly say, uh, um, no, thank you. But um, we'll <laughs> we'll deal with that when it comes along. But again, thank you so much for joining us, Kevin. This was so much fun. I really appreciate you inviting <laughs> me, and and you're really easy to talk to. And uh, I hope we get a chance to do it again. Absolutely. All right. Well, have a good day. Take care. Bye. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for uh, making it through that episode. Um, if you have questions or if you have follow-up questions for this episode um, or have questions uh, for a future episode, um, not necessarily related to what we talked about with uh, John, but uh, just in general, you can go over to fearcastpodcast.com, go to the submit a question link, um, and you can ask the question there. I read all of them and I will review them and, and likely put it up on a future episode. Again, if you have a moment and you can uh, fill out the uh, the survey over at fearcast podcast backslash survey um and uh, I, I, again it would uh, it would be a delight if you could and again it's just to make this podcast better um all right um as always, please remember the FearCast is not a substitute for psychotherapy. If you have questions about treatment or trying to get better or just need a little bit more support, you can go over to fearcastpodcast.com. You can go to the Find Help link there, and there's going to be some information for you that might help you along a little bit. All right, everybody, until next time, take a risk, challenge yourself, and don't take your brain too seriously. Bye.